You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Microsoft springs its bear trap again and catches Fancy Bear. This time, the targets are more to the right than to the left. The U.S. Senate holds hearings on cybersecurity. Hacking back is expected to be on the table. The U.K. wants more sanctions on Russia. U.S. senators are looking into reducing sanctions collateral economic damage. Operation Red Signature pokes at South Korean supply chains. Intrusion Truth doxes Chinese intelligence officers. And more news on medical device bugs. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, August 21st, 2018. Microsoft announced late last night the takedown of six sites associated with Russian influence operations in the U.S. Redmond's Digital Crimes Unit ran the operation, which concentrated on bogus sites established over the last few months to impersonate public policy organizations. This time, conservative organizations received attention. The Hudson Institute, a conservative think tank that's investigated corruption in Russia. The International Republican Institute, a democracy promotion not-for-profit. And three sites built to look as if they were affiliated with the U.S. Senate. The sixth site was non-political. It spoofed Microsoft. Microsoft initially went no farther than attributing the operation to APT28, but others, and subsequently Microsoft itself, have pointed out that APT-28 is the same Russian government threat actor also tracked as Strontium or, our favorite, Fancy Bear. These are all, of course, associated convincingly with the GRU, Russia's military intelligence organization. So how do these takedowns work? Is this a case of hacking back, like a cyber letter of mark and reprisal? No, it's more lawfare than warfare, not that this should take anything away from the people at Microsoft who executed the takedown. And let us say, bravo, Microsoft. What they did in this case, and they've done much the same in others, is to obtain and execute a court order transferring control of the offending domains to themselves, thereby neutralizing the activity. By Microsoft's tally, they've done this 12 times over the past two years, shuttering 84 websites set up by the GRU. Redmond quotes the special master, a federal judge appointed in the case, to the effect that there is good cause to conclude that these activities by the Strontium APT-28 Fancy Bear threat actor are likely to continue. Microsoft notes that both major political parties are being targeted, and the company expects the Russian threat actors to broaden the scope of their attacks as U.S. midterm elections approach. So, lawfare and not mark and reprisal. But there's some sentiment being expressed today on Capitol Hill in favor of legislation that would allow companies that suffered cyber attacks to hack back at their tormentors. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, a Democrat of Rhode Island, 
issued prepared remarks he intends to deliver this afternoon at hearings of the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Crime and Terrorism, which is deliberating cyber matters today. The senator says, quote, We ought to think hard about how and when to license hackback authorities so capable, responsible private sector actors can deter foreign aggression, end quote. He calls this active cyber defense. Thus, he sees hacking back as a national security move. That is, after all, what deterring foreign aggression amounts to. Leave aside for the moment that this might be seen as what SES types, especially the lawyers among them, call an inherently governmental responsibility. There have certainly been private sector activities with national security implications before. Private military contractors would represent an extreme example, as would privateers, who've been out of fashion and legal authority since the latter part of the 19th century. But there are other examples. Before there was a well-established U.S. intelligence community, if you wanted to get something out of the ordinary done, the government was likely to retain a white-shoe Wall Street law firm, the way Teddy Roosevelt did when he wanted a canal in Panama. And of course, contractors pay a significant role in U.S. cybersecurity, Booz Allen Hamilton just got a billion-dollar task order under the government-wide Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Dynamic and Evolving Federal Enterprise Network Defense contract vehicle. That's a defense award, not one for hacking back, but you get the drift here. And By the way, congratulations, Booz. And of course, Microsoft has been dining out on Fancy Bear takedowns for two years. So what would one want done that a law authorizing hacking back might enable? and that isn't already being done. Hackback skeptics point out the problems with turning computer network operators loose on one another. It might be difficult to contain retaliatory malware, and the temptation to hack back in anti-competitive ways might prove difficult to resist. In any case, we'll watch Senator Whitehouse's proposals with interest. Our hometown of Baltimore was a famous nest of privateers at one time, but that was during the War of 1812. Nowadays, people around here work under government-wide acquisition contracts, not letters of mark and reprisal. We continue to track reports of cyber adversaries making use of fileless malware to evade detection. Travis Rosick is chief technology officer at Blue Vector, and he offers his perspective on fileless malware. Cyber adversaries have been extremely successful using this attack vector, and, and it's gaining a lot more attention from the mainstream media. From a Pony, Ponymon Institute study as well as uh, a McAfee report, McAfee report stated that they're seeing a 425% plus increase year over year in the uh, the volume of fileless-based attacks. Uh, in the Ponymon Institute, um, they've stated that uh, fileless attacks are 10 times more likely to be successful than more of the uh, traditional file-based attacks. Now, let's just back up a little bit. Uh, from your point of view, how do you define a fileless attack? From my perspective and... Uh, what comes to mind when, when I think of a fileless attack, um, so if you think of the uh, attack lifecycle or the different stages of an attack, one piece of it, what, what they would consider fileless in nature. So from an adversary's perspective, that you know the cyber defenders are typically in a reactive mode, and uh, fundamentally uh, over the years, it's very much focused on using uh, like signature-based mechanisms to identify attacks that have helped in other places and preventing them from happening again. Uh, so adversaries are very... Um, opportunistic and they leverage mechanisms that allow them to adapt and evolve rather quickly. So in the case of the fileless attack, 
there's no files written to to the host or the disk. Um, you know, uh, the, the part of the attack executes in memory only, and it also leverages trusted applications within a system. So a very common one is uh, leveraging uh, PowerShell. So every IT admin uses PowerShell within a Windows environment. It's a trusted utility, and it's used for lots of different things. So their, their sweet spot they like to target is that gray area. What makes it the most difficult to ascertain benign from malicious? They know that a trusted tool that's always going to be in the environment, you know, they don't have to download capabilities that could cause more attention to themselves, which makes it very difficult for um, an instant responder or an analyst to identify that the adversary is in the environment or acting. Uh, the other challenge is a lot of these things don't necessarily create logs or things to go in and look at to see what happened on the system, uh, nor do they really leave a footprint to search for hashes or other mechanisms. So it, it's very difficult. Um, so the legacy security industry, you know, from a signature-based, file-based model, um, ha- has really been trying to catch up. And clearly, it, it's not catching up as fast as uh, as the adversaries are being able to be successful. And so what are the successful ways to go at this? How can you detect a fileless attack within your system or your organization? Like anything, there's no silver bullet to cybersecurity, despite a lot of marketing you see from different vendors out there today. And one of the most painful things is really good cyber hygiene, proper network engineering and design. Uh, you know, the key is always to protect your critical information and segmenting or isolating core parts of your business from the things that are high risk. Uh, so, for example, part of your your core IP or personal uh, customer data that's uh, that should be protected is air-gapped or, you know, very tightly controlled and restricted from the systems that, you know, surf the Internet or receive tremendous amounts of email on a, a daily basis. Uh, so having proper network design is, is one good way to help do that. The speed of detection is always critical. Um, so getting a heads up that there is some type of malicious code coming into the environment or to, to uh, targeting endpoints within your, your enterprise, uh, getting that head start to kind of do the analysis or do more focused monitoring of those endpoints um, potentially can give you uh, a jump start to doing that forensics analysis or doing triage. Uh, because if, if you uh, try to respond to it after the fact, like as, as I mentioned before, there is really limited amount of data that's left behind. So without having those breadcrumbs and uh, log files, et cetera, it's really difficult to really identify what happened. That's Travis Rosick from Blue Vector. A British mission to the U.S. will push for more sanctions against Russia. Her Majesty's government remains rightly exercised about the Russian hybrid war that found its lethal way to English soil. The U.S. Senate is working to ensure that existing and planned sanctions don't rain collateral economic damage on U.S. and allied countries. And it's not all Russians today. Trend Micro has published a comprehensive look at Operation Red Signature, which they call, quote, an information theft-driven supply chain attack targeting organizations in South Korea, end quote. The campaign surfaced late last month. And Motherboard describes intrusion truth, apparently a hacktivist group engaged in doxing members of Chinese intelligence services. Motherboard seems convinced, based on their exchanges with Intrusion Truth, that they are indeed the hacktivists they say they are. It would be interesting to rule out the possibility that that group is a hostile intelligence service, an intelligence service hostile to China, that is. A thought experiment. One could hire a company to dox a hostile intelligence service, 
Would that be hacking back or would that just be government contracting? Motherboard notes that some of the Chinese officers doxxed subsequently showed up in U.S. federal charging documents. Coincidence or not, they're not sure. Finally, if you don't have enough to worry about, U.S. CERT is warning of vulnerabilities in Philips Intellispace Cardiovascular and Accelera Intellispace Cardiovascular products. Philips says it's working to squash the bugs, which appear mostly to be of the privilege escalation and admin credential varieties. If you want to make people's flesh creep, use medical device and hacking in the same sentence. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Rick Howard. He's the Chief Security Officer at Palo Alto Networks, and he also leads Unit 42, which is their Threat Intel team. Rick, welcome back. Um, You wanted to sort of take us through an approach to buying cybersecurity products. Um, You know, I think all of us who have mobile devices, we're familiar with app stores. Um, And you've got this notion of an app store for buying cybersecurity products. What's going on here? Yeah, I think the industry is about ready to change, right? Uh, We are pretty much reached the maximum point of not being able to buy any more cybersecurity products. You and I have talked about this in the past, that, you know, small organizations, you know, with two guys and a dog in the back room, you know, they have 15 to 20 security tools deployed. Medium-sized companies have about 50. And big companies like, you know, big banks or big government, they have over 
150 okay security tools and none of us can manage one more point product it just it's too much it's too hard to do in order to deploy their solution okay for as a network defender i have to do uh deploy it to my network i have to give it complete visibility and I have to have my internal InfoSec teams integrate it with all the other security tools that I have already deployed. When buying a tool that doesn't integrate, that puts the, look, the load, the burden on managing all that all on your local InfoSec team. And like I said before, those guys just can't take any more work. So what I think is going to happen in the industry is this idea of a cybersecurity app store. And the perfect place to deploy these things is at the firewalls, okay? Because firewalls are the, uh, everybody has firewalls and they're at the exact right spot they need to be to be able to do uh, any kind of interesting security algorithm that we might show up, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason that is, is because of firewall vendors, Palo Alto Network, but all the firewall vendors have been ex experimenting with moving their co intelligence collection piece and their processing piece looking for bad guys up to the cloud over the last five years, right? Right, we're all essentially becoming SaaS operators, right? Because we essentially have a unlimited collection capability up there, an unlimited processing capability up there. Because if we tried to put all that down on a firewall, it would fall over because of too much stuff to do, right? Right. So we, all of us, have been doing that for the last five years, right? So, and then all of us have been experimenting with adding new functionality. On, in the cloud, okay, meaning adding a new algorithm, a new application in the cloud so that we don't have to put that down on the firewall itself, all right? And so the next logical thing that we're going to start seeing here in the future is that's going to – all the firewall vendors are going to be opening that up to third parties, meaning they're going to open it up to their customers. They're going to open it up to their partners. And if this goes the way I think it's going to go, they're going to open it up to their competitors, because it's going to be if you and it's going to work just like the Apple App Store. Your firewall becomes like the iPhone, and if you want to deploy, let's say, uh, the next behavioral analytics engine, you can go pick the Palo Alto Networks app, or you can pick the Semantic app, or you can pick the you know Fred's app. You know the guy down in the garage with two guys and a dog back there. Right. right? You can run them all at the same time, and decide which one you like. And say, hey, I like Fred's. Okay, and just leave and just leave that one on and turn the other two off. And there's no fuss or no must. You don't have to deploy a box. You don't have to train your staff. It's all running on the existing infrastructure anyway. So I truly believe that we're going to see a complete change, a complete flipping of the cybersecurity vendor consumption model. Uh, we're going to be at a spot where we're not going to where we are today, where we can't add one more. We're going to be adding hundreds more because it's going to be so easy uh, to do and to evaluate. So that's where I think it's going in the future. So you think we're? Is this, does this require a certain level of standardization? Where uh, you know, for these, uh, I guess in in, in effect, um, the sort of plugins, right? I mean, they, they plug into yeah. your firewall, and uh, so the suppliers, the vendors, would have to meet a certain standard to be able to uh, to work with uh, Company X's firewall to be able to. I guess what's in it for them is uh, opening themselves up to the to this market. Exactly right. And, uh, network defenders are going to have to pick a vendor they like that does the basic infrastructure. And I'm thinking it's going to be one of the firewall vendors, right? And then once they choose that, uh, they're going to trust that vendor to vet everything, just like most of us trust Apple and Google to vet their own apps in the App Store. All right. Well, it's certainly uh, interesting to think about, as always. Uh, thanks for sharing the information. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. 
And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.